Welcome to Food Chat, a weekly show that's all about food production, including farming, ranching, processing, and basically all things involved in getting food from the field to your plate. Now, let's get you reconnected to your food, and here are your hosts, Greg Bloom and Chef Jackson Lamb. Talk about an uphill battle, 2,000 acres of beans and cattle, but he don't ever get rattled, he just goes till the sun goes down. Hey, this is Greg Bloom with Food Chat, and here we are, another episode of Food Chat, which is all about reconnecting you to your food. Where does your food come from? How does it get from the farm or the ranch to your table? That's the kind of thing we talk about here. And today I have David Pittman online with us. Hey, David, welcome to Food Chat. Oh, thank you for thinking of us, including us, Greg. I appreciate it. Sure, sure. Uh, David, I've been excited for a long time to have you on. And of course, I had the, the pleasure to go out to your farm and your plant one time a couple of years ago. But um, I think I'll start, David, just by asking you a few questions about your your company and your family. Tell us a little bit about your family and how it is that you got started growing poultry and processing poultry. Oh, thank you. So um, on my dad's side, they came out to the central part of California in 1888. Um, and I'm the fifth generation from that point. Uh, my grandfather had five brothers who were all working the farm when they grew up. Mm. And uh, the the first two generations were dryland wheat and barley farmers. Uh, when my grandfather came back from World War II, um, his other brothers had continued on the grain farming. And so he went off on his own, uh, worked for the power company for a couple of years, and in 1947 opened up his own feed mill and with his brother. And it was a Rolfs and Perina feed mill. So that started us nice. off feeding you know, livestock and, and cattle and chickens and turkeys. And then in 1954, uh, Ross and Perina helped finance my grandfather and started to grow his first turkeys. So we started growing poultry in 1954 with turkeys at the same time where they were doing some egg layers and some, some chickens also. So my uh, father continued on the tradition, and then uh, I came back uh, after college. Great. Thanks for explaining that, David. Now, of those things that your grandfather started, what which of them do you still do? So... I mean, we still grow turkeys. My grandfather started off as what's called an independent turkey farmer, where we where he would grow the turkeys and then um, sell them to a live processor. So we did that um, from 1954 all the way until 2003 when we opened up our first plant. And then, of course, we became farmers trying to process birds in 03. And the irony, of course, is with you know with anything okay. is you know my grandfather started growing turkeys. Let's talk about you, David, just for a little bit. You had a lot of options when you were, uh, you know, in high school, college age to do a lot of different things besides uh, going to the family business and join the family business. So why, why did you decide to work for the family business instead of doing something else? Um, I always tease and joke that my parents brainwashed me from a young age. Uh, my mother... <laughs> Set up. My mother set a good example. You know, my mother sacrificed and, and stayed home and took care of my, my three brothers and I and really gave us a good foundation to take care of us. Um, she was very health conscious and and our, our food was definitely a no sugar house and, and eating organic vegetables at an early age. And then my dad was a workaholic and always out working on the farm. And so if I want to spend time with my dad, I had to go to the farm. And my dad did a good job of, of balancing that. So we, you know, as a young kid, you know, like five, six, seven, eight years old. If I got to go to the farm with him, I would be, you know, getting a chance to drive tractors, get a chance to work with the guys, get a chance to, 
you know, feed the birds and he'd, he'd pay me a little bit extra, you know, a little bit of money for that. And so between that and of course he also, you know, made sure we had pancakes if we went to the farm and made sure we had chocolate milkshakes for lunch. All of a sudden I love to go to work. Yeah. He knew how to motivate a kid, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Especially when I thought a rice cake with cinnamon on top was a treat at home. So yeah, yeah. I wanted to go to work. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was a good way to bribe you. That's funny. Yeah. I grew up on a farm too, not as big as the one you grew up on, but uh, th those kind of farm lessons were pretty, pretty cool way, especially when you're a kid and you can drive a big tractor. That's pretty cool. Oh. Um, so what, what are some of the challenges that you, you, you face running a, a family farm and, and processing plant? The challenges we faced is, you know, coming from a farming background, our background was a lot of duct tape and baling wire. And my grand, my grandfather and father, they both did a very good job of, of being conservative and frugal with their money to make things last. Uh, definitely when you go into processing, um, you know, instead of duct tape and baling wire, it becomes a lot of stainless steel and concrete. And so that was a big learning curve for us for being able to make those huge reinvestments to, to make a beautiful facility that's, that's a clean, safe facility to process birds in. So that was definitely a learning curve. And also, you know, going from, you know, great guys on the farm working for us to having, you know, hundreds of employees at a plant, that was definitely a learning curve also with getting us to, to go to that next level of taking care of team members that uh, just a lot more team members to take care of and to support and encourage tell us david about that that big jump that you had to take uh, it's a lot of risk to open up your own plant and go from being a grower to also a processing plant and a lot of farm and ranch families don't make that jump it's just too big of a jump uh some have done that and then failed because it's just too daunting of a task to now run a plant but was was that a hard thing for your family to to decide to do and then actually implement? Well, it actually was a long process. It was over a 20 year process in the making. My grandfather and father wanted to open up a plant back in 1978. So literally the year I was born, uh, there was a plant in Lancaster, California that closed. And so my my dad and my grandfather went there, toured the plant, looked to make an offer. I've got a, a great VHS video recording of that plant when my grandfather and father went through it. At one point, they kind of looked at doing a plant up in Oregon and Washington, an old Norbest plant. Then in 1988-89, uh, they, um, they bought land, uh, pulled permits to build a plant in Madeira, um, and started moving down that path. And then um, a, a large integrator came in and offered them a good contract to not do that and keep growing birds for them and not build a plant. Mm. And so there was a couple times we almost did a plant. Um, we almost did a plant in Modesto, uh, in the early, in the, in like 92, 93, um, an old Lewis Rich plant. And so I grew up with my father always wanted to do that. I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo from 97 to 01. And, uh, I came back, you know, wanting to knowing the long term we needed to get on our own and build our own plant. And so graduated in 01, um, we looked at facilities and, and purchased a facility in 02 and then opened the facility process our first birds in August of 03. And it was a very, 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 very hard road. Uh, we lost money for five years straight trying to um, build that base to pay the bills because a, a plant just the overhead of a plant is just very difficult and you have to have enough, uh, enough pounds to pay the, to pay those fixed costs to make it over that hump. Yeah. I think people, uh, David, the people that listen to this uh, mostly live in the cities, and many of them never been to a farm or ranch, probably 
most of them never been to a poultry processing place, but uh, they don't realize, I think, um, maybe we could explain it to them, but what a high volume, low margin business it is. There's The margins are terrible, <laughs> you know, and but you have to do volume, right? Am I right? It is. I mean, my mother always called the plant the money pit because no matter what happened, we just it would just always need more money, more money, more improvements, more improvements. It's it's definitely very capital intense, and you know we've made jokes. Probably should have bought real estate or done something else. It'd be a much better, higher return on what we're doing. But also, it's you know that plant has also provided a means for our farms to to bring to market. You know, what we feel is a better bird, and so that's it's been a necessary necessary medium to be able to take care of our customers and provide right. a living for our families. So it sounds like the whole time you were going to college at Cal Cal Slow, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, you you knew when you came out of school, you were gonna work for the family business and your family would be operating their own plant, am I right? I did. The I was still, every single weekend at Cal Poly, I was still going back and forth and working. Uh, we were, I was also growing hay and doing a bunch of stuff at that point in farming. And also in my second year of college, we started growing chickens for other small USDA plants. So I became their farmer. And so my grand, my father and grandfather were still growing turkeys. And then I started growing chickens in 98 for other small USDA plants and state plants. And so that was one during my college years. Um, during my end of college for Cal Poly, you have to do what's called a senior project mm. to graduate. And so my senior project was actually a business marketing plan for, for to launch Mary's Chickens. Um, so I'm literally, you know, living and breathing and working. My career has been basically what I, you know, what my little senior project business plan was at Cal Poly. Wow. Well, most people don't have a very practical, well, I should say some people don't have a very practical, uh, project like that when you're a senior, but yours was very practical. Yeah. Uh, it's hilarious to go back and read that thing. It, it's, I mean, nothing worked out exactly as, as it was planned, but it definitely was pointing us in the right direction. Now you get out of college and then you're working for your family to open up this processing plant. And then you guys lost money for five years. You know, you can't really go to the industry and say, I need someone to mentor me uh, to show me the ropes. How did you learn what to do and how to fine tune a plant to make it profitable? You know, the, the, the three plants that opened up in California, USDA plants that opened before us did close. And so definitely there was, you know, high stakes against us. Luckily, there was a lot of old timers in the industry that wanted us to succeed. And so we were able to hire consultants. Um, you know, Gene Blout, bless his heart, has passed on, but he was a wonderful, long time, 50 year old, 50 year in business, turkey, turkey guy that really helped us and held, held our hands for getting equipment going. Uh, we had a lot of good people that came on board that helped us. We just had to, and you know, we bought a lot of used equipment. And so reaching out and buying used equipment, even actually, even in Colorado area, Barber's Poultry, we reached out to Dave and his brother, and they were very helpful in trying. We bought some equipment off of them and they were helpful kind of mentoring us and telling us to do's and don'ts, what we should and shouldn't do. So there's a lot of good people that wanted, uh, that were willing to help out. Well, that was a blessing. You guys found some people that knew what to do and yeah. Um, so you mentioned Mary's, uh, that's, that's how I think most people know your, your company is through that brand. Now, Mary, Mary, that's your mom, right? Yeah. So it's my mother. My dad had, you know, a wonderful revelation to him that hit in the middle of the night, uh, to, to, when we were launching our Turkey brand at the time to, to go Mary's instead of, you know, Pittman farms, you know, no, that's not a great ring to it. 
um, but most but the industry always named after their last name and we just that didn't have a ring to it uh, my mom has always battled with health all of her life and so whatever she ate really affected how she felt and so i grew up as a kid you know eating healthy and eating organic worms and they were nasty worm infested uh you know apples but so I, we, my dad named after her and she became like the matriarch and it was kind of a good timing because my brothers and I were kind of finally, you know, growing up and getting out of high school and moving on. And so she then had time to help, um, you know, demo in stores, deal with a hotline. There was a one, I remember the one right to her cell phone and she was very good at customer relations. So it was Mary's, my mother, my grandmother, my great grandmother, there's all three generations of Mary's. Wow. I tried to name my one of my daughters Mary, but my wife did not go for that idea. If it was just a family history, you know, or family tradition, she'd go for it. But being that there was a, a chicken brand around it, she did not want to put a daughter in that box. Oh, well, yeah, that's funny. I mean, I understand, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, that's a cool story. And the Mary's brand is like, you know, uh, we're here in Colorado, David, but uh, everybody knows that brand. Maybe they don't know your last name, but even though it's on the box, too, but or the package, <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about your product portfolio and, and what makes your products unique in the marketplace, do you think? Uh, we're very blessed that my, that my grandfather and father didn't build the plant in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s because, um, you know, that period was definitely a, you know, whatever's the cheapest food available. Um, people, you know, appreciated things, but not to the extent that they do now. And so I think that having... A local producer that produced, you know, antibiotic-free or, or organic products is much more appreciated now uh, than it would have been back in those time periods. And so, the attributes that we've done, um, of course, are sim you know, the antibiotic-free, the vegetarian diet. Um, we do organic, but you know that there's two other key things that are I think are pretty critical that we do that that affects things. Uh, you know, one of them is from animal welfare standpoint. Um, we have what's called a sedation stunner that puts the birds to sleep. So when it comes to plant. Uh, the birds go through a five-minute process of CO2 that puts them to sleep before we put them on the line. Uh, that We think that really helps to calm or relax the bird. Another thing that we do is um, we have what's called an air chill process that makes us very different where when we chill the birds down, after you process the bird, they're about 100 degrees, so you got to chill them down about 40, and we do that with air instead of water. Uh, that air process is about a, about a three-hour process. We have two miles of line to go back and forth and back and forth and the bird is chilled with air uh, the alternative way is water chill in a water chill process uh, the bird is submerged takes about 45 minutes but during that water submerging the birds gain weight they gain water and that water absorbed up in the meat and affects the flavor and we think it really affects the flavor because of the chlorine because when you do water chill bath you gotta you gotta chlorinate that water um, at 40 parts per million floor free chlorine which is about 10 times the chlorine level of swimming pool and we feel that really affects the flavor when that is absorbed in the chicken so between our our air chill and our and our sedation standing for welfare we think those two are two huge things that affect the, the taste and the welfare of the bird for those who don't know david what's the alternative to sedation stunning like what do uh, what what do the other big chicken plants do so the alternative that some that some is done is uh, for chickens is, is electrical stunning. So you you the birds would be dumped or slid out of the module um, while they're still conscious and then hung up by their feet upside down on the line. And when that when their feet are hanging by a shackle line, their head will be hanging down and it'll go into about a ten foot water bath that has electricity and then it'll stun them at that point. By asking the sedation stunner, it um, the bird does not have to be 
you know, dumped or slid out of the module and does not have to be shackled while it's still conscious. And so those two stress points are, are reduced and removed uh, by putting the bird to sleep. Yeah, um, I've had a chance in uh, three times, David, to go see plants in the south part of the U.S., Arkansas, uh, two plants, and Texas one, and I've seen that alternative way, and it's kind of not fun to see these live chickens that are pretty upset about being grabbed by the feet and put in shackles, and then uh, they go through the water bath, and then they're stunned, and then they go through the processing plant, but it's kind of a violent thing to watch, <laughs> and uh yeah, from an, an animal welfare point of view, I, I would think if people saw that, they would like your method much better. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I think that, you know, as part of our our societies, we always want things cheap, cheap, cheap. And so I think even those processors would love to put in this system, but it costs money and will the consumer pay for it? And so, but I think you're right. If the consumer saw it, they would add a few pennies to their chicken to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. And the same with the air shield too. I've, I've seen that brackish, yucky, poopy, bloody feather water that the, uh, the chickens have to get chilled in and then it's got chlorine in it. Is that is that why, David, there's a label on water chilled chicken that has that retained water claim? Is that why? Yeah, so that that claim is if it says like this may, bird may contain, your poultry may contain, you know, 6% or 8% retained water, that means that if the bird went in at 4 pounds and it came out, you know, 4.3 pounds, they have to, to state that weight gain by that chlorine water that's absorbed within the meat. Right. So on our poultry, we have, anybody that air chills does not have to make that claim because we actually lose weight. We'll, we'll put a four pound bird in and it'll, it'll be like 3.8, 3.9 coming out. Well, like, uh, David, more plants don't go to the air chilled system. It seems to be so much better taste, experience, shelf life. But is it just that they had to build the plant from the get go to do it that way and that renovation of money or it's just the overall process. It's just cheaper to water chill and people want cheap chicken. I think it's both. I think that, you know, we always want chicken is always viewed as a cheap protein. And so people want to keep that price point lower. Uh, plants that were built were not built with the space for that air chill takes up a lot more space. Um, you know, in Europe, they went through this about 20 years ago and the way they combat it, which I'm not saying is right or wrong, but they, they basically gave a timeline and acquired the processor to put, you know, chlorine as an ingredient on their chicken if they want to keep water chilling. And so that very quickly enticed those processors to, to go to air chill so that they'd have to list as an ingredient. I think definitely once you understand and, and have, have seen the difference, like you've seen water chill as air chill, you definitely, you can't un, unlearn that. And definitely once you taste the difference side by side, you can definitely taste that difference. Um, David, let's talk about, um, you know, the, you're a family business and, um, you're, you're, you're not a small business. You're, you're a good sized business. I, I say that cause I've been to your plant and it's a very impressive plant. Well, how do you compete though with the national brands that are anymore owned by international companies? Um, and, and you're competing as a family company with an international company. So how, how do you, how do you stay in business and compete in that marketplace? It's so competitive. You know, I'll kind of highlight the point I said earlier. I think if we did done this with my grandfather and father 20 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to compete and we'd have been out of business. I think there's a there's support now to have local smaller operations. You know, our competition are billion-dollar-year companies. They could squash us if they wanted to, but the consumers and the customer base wants to prop us up and keep us in business. Mm -hmm. And plus, 
by being smaller, we can react to the customer's needs and customer service on a much quicker basis and point and make changes, make adaptions, make improvements. And I think that that is what's kept us, kept that support going where, yeah, we're not the cheapest and there's a, there's a, there's a cost to it, but as long as we show service and, and a better product, um, there's the support there for it now. Let's let's talk about uh, where people can buy your products. Um, we have a lot of listeners here in Colorado, but we also have listeners on the podcast in other major cities in the U.S. So, if someone wanted to find Mary's Chicken uh, in a city, where where might they go? I mean, in Colorado, we've got Natural Grocers by Vitamin Cottage. They've got quite a few locations throughout the you know throughout the western part of the United States. Um, mm-hmm. Whole Foods on the West Coast carries a lot of us in most of the stores in the Southern Pacific region. Um, Sprouts will carry us on some items, and we also do some private label organic for Sprouts. Um, We do private label for organic for HEB in Texas. Um, Mm. And then we have lots of wonderful independent supporters up and down the West Coast, Um, small independent markets with, you know, five to 15 stores that have been wonderful at supporting us. And a lot of great restaurants. You know, we've been very blessed to be on a lot of menus and a lot of restaurants um, which has been wonderful to get our name out there. Yeah, that's that's a nice thing about, you know, people do want to know where their food comes from, and they still do want to buy from families that raise uh, the, the, the crop or the animal that they're they're consuming, but they just don't know where to find it, right? So I'm glad you, I'm glad you have that following. Um, uh, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, that's what I do. My family, you know, we grew up on a farm, but we're always trying to find local producers of things, uh, to support, um, you know, here in Colorado, it's melon time of year, so we can still buy local melons right now, watermelons, cantaloupes, uh, Colorado peaches. But you're out in a different business climate than than us. Um, you're in Northern California, and uh, uh, it's increasingly harder to operate um, an ag business um, in any state, but especially some Western states. David, I'm. What do you What do you think about the future? I mean. Is it sustainable to do what you're doing for another generation, do you think? You know, that's a good question. Um, you know, when, you, when people hear, oh, you're from California, they think of Los Angeles and San Francisco. But we're luckily in, in Fresno, the ag part of the, of the state, which is the largest, at least the large ag economy in the, in the world, is right here for farming in Fresno County. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, it is a scary climate that we're in and it gets scarier for the future. There's, you know, a lot of potential as, as the houses come closer and closer to our farms, that becomes problematic because no one wants to have a chicken ranch next to your house. And I, so I think that it is going to be more difficult for the future, but I think that, you know, we, we've, I always like to go to Europe to see what's kind of, kind of come for us for the future. Cause they kind of have their five or 10 years ahead of us. And so I've been able to go back there and see, um, how birds are grown in Germany or Holland or UK. And a lot of what I've seen there is just, you know, changes in improvement in welfare, slower growing breeds. So I think there's, I think there always will be a place for a local, um, a local producer. Um, but I definitely think it'll be more difficult going forward. And I definitely know that, you know, the, my grandfather or father would, you know, have a harder and harder time dealing with those new things, but hopefully the younger generation is more adaptable and more, uh, willing to cooperate and, and improve, move forward. When you go over to the EU and, and to Europe to visit, are you finding that there are still family farms, smaller entities that can stay in business or is it all gone big there and it's just big industrial owned 
Are you, how does that work over there? Um, it's still pretty similar to here. It's, it's still kind of a mixture, but mm -hmm. I definitely will kind of give a, I'm here in the central Valley. I've been concerned about how many people have, you know, old family farmers have sold out to venture capital money, which gets concerning for the future. Well, that's hard to resist the farm town that I grew up in, David Brighton, which is northeast of Denver. Most of those guys sold out, and now it's all housing, tract housing. It's too close to the Denver International Airport, and it was more profitable for them to sell the land than to be a dairy or or raise hay or raise corn, you know. So, yeah, they, they did the economic thing, you know, they sold. <laughs> so. Well, hey, David, we're almost at the end of our time. Um, I appreciate you coming on Food Chat. Is there anything you'd like to – to close with just uh, people wanting to know, you know, this whole show is about reconnecting people to their food and helping them understand where their food comes from. I guess I'll ask you this last question to close. Uh, what do you think is one of the things that consumers just don't understand uh, about, you know, raising poultry that, that they need to know? Um, I think more just the appreciation of how much work goes into it. I think Greg, you could probably testify when you came and saw the tour of, from the hatchery to the farm to the feed mill to the plant, you know how much, how many people's lives and families families you're supporting, and also how much work goes into producing that one package of tray pack of boneless goodness breast. Yeah, that's a good point. It's an incredible amount of work. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, hey, David, thanks for joining us on Food Chat, and uh, I just love your product, and you have a wonderful family, and I look forward to seeing you soon. But uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you, Greg, for thinking of us. Appreciate. It. Today's episode of Food Chat is brought to you by RanchFreshMeats.com. RanchFreshMeats.com has the best selection of beef, bison, wagyu, air-chilled chicken, turkey, and duroc pork, and more, all sourced from the family farms and ultra-clean USDA plants that they know personally. Take the mystery out of where your meat comes from and how the animals were cared for, and buy your family's meats at RanchFreshMeats.com. Hey, save 10% on your first order by using Food Chat at checkout. Orders over two. $200 include free shipping. RanchFreshMeats.com. Here's to the farmer, the plants, the fields, and the spring. The turn from green to that harvest honey. Pull one up for the banker downtown. They got him on his feet with handshake of money. Here's to the farmer's wife that loves him every night. Raising a son. And a daughter, they gather around the table, send it up to the father. Somehow they get closer when times get harder. Here's to the farmer. The views and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Crawford Broadcasting, the station, management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.